Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Hey, thank you so much, Austin, for reading uh, what might be a record-setting length on the passage from our scripture reading. Uh, but my, my goal in, in asking Austin to read that long of a passage uh, was, one, so that you guys could kind of sit with where we're going tonight, right? Um, I know that it has been a minute since we've been together between Thanksgiving break and pig jig. So uh, maybe, uh, you know, the, you, you've lost some familiarity with, with where we've been in the servant songs. Uh, so we've, uh, Austin didn't read the entire book of Isaiah there for the record. Um, he just read uh, almost two chapters. Uh, and there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. It's a, it is a, um, a very lengthy book of prophecy for us to take in. And uh, as we've been walking through these, this four-week series, we've selected four passages that are referred to as the servant songs. And, and they are passages which are messianic in nature, as we will make the case and talk about tonight. Uh, tonight is, is probably the most prominent of the, uh, of the passages that are looked at as the servant songs. Um, and, and so uh, we've, we've been kind of running with this whole theme of like, uh, you obviously see the record up there, um, but, but these are poems that are about the deliverance and the salvation that God is going to bring to the world through his servant. Right, and so uh, tonight we are covering the the absolute hit of of the of the tracks that we've been walking through. This is the one with the most streams on Spotify. This is the one that you can fire up at the at the karaoke event, right? And and everybody's going to automatically know the words to, all right? And and they'll they'll be singing along to you. Um, but but here's the the risk with the the songs that, that get the people going. All right, it, it's that. Um, the, they can become really familiar to us and we, they can kind of, the, the meaning of the songs can grow kind of stale, right? I mean, like you think about some of the anthems uh, that, that people might sing in like a karaoke setting, you know, like the little ditty about Jack and Diane, right? Or uh, the, the small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train, going anywhere, right? Um, or it started out with a kiss. How did it end up like this? It was only a kiss. It was only a kiss, right? And so, um, you know, we don't, we don't think through. When, when we get so used to just uh, singing those anthems, we, we kind of lose uh, the, the substance behind it. And so uh, what I really want to dig into the substance of what this passage is saying tonight uh, is, is we examine uh, the, this poem from Isaiah, this prophecy that, uh, you know, for the record was... was um, prophesied from uh, the prophet Isaiah uh, almost 600 years before the life and the ministry of Jesus. But, uh, you know, any of you if, you, if you have any familiarity with the story of, uh, of, of Jesus' life and, and ultimately his crucifixion, you, you would uh, look at those verses that Austin just read through and, and say, you know, without hesitation almost, that, uh, you know, there, there's no controversy in your mind that that passage is about uh, the, the, the death that our Savior endured, right? 
And, but but I, I will say to you that, that this is a controversial passage, right? That there are some people who uh, have disputes about this passage, uh, namely people who uh, don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? And, and, and you know, for you to say that it's absolutely absurd that this passage is not referring to Jesus, I am 100% agreement with you. Um, and so I want to I wanna flash the, uh, the scoreboard up there for you guys to see uh, all of the, the prophecies uh, that, that Jesus fulfilled from this passage. All right, we're going we're gonna to leave this up there for a while. Uh, we're not going to turn the scoreboard off when the clock hits zero, uh, like some people in this state like to do. Um, but, sorry, <clears throat> roll tide. So... Um, making, making the case, making the case that this passage is, is not about Jesus would, would be like, you know, if, if we're going to be, uh, you know, examining uh, the next album drop that, that, that T. Swift is going to drop after she and Travis break up, right? And like, be like, this song is totally not about Travis and Taylor, Right? Sorry, I'm not, I'm not trying to offend you guys that, that are, or think that they're going to get married and live happy after, happily ever after. They might. They might. But um, I had AI help me uh, generate some lyrics about a potential breakup song. Um, this, this is what AI came up with. It says, we were a highlight reel, a love so sweet, but now it's echoes in the empty seat. Jersey's retired. The game has passed. A love once forever. Now a love that couldn't last. That's pretty good, right? Chat GPT did some good work there. Um, I, think, I think Taylor's version is going to be better. I'm looking forward to it, okay? But if, if T. Swift were to drop that song and, and then people would try to say, that's not actually about Travis Kelsey, you'd be like, that's absurd, right? And, and my point being that, that this passage, uh, obviously there's, there's so many, if, if we're a student in the New Testament, we see uh, that, that Jesus' life fulfilled so much of the, the claims of this passage. And so for us, what, what does this mean for us, right? Um, when, when, when we look at the, the, the prophesied suffering of the servant, what, what are the implications for us? And here's the thing that we have to grapple with in this text. It's that we are guilty. So how do we deal with our guilt? How do we deal with our guilt? And the short answer is that, that we don't in any productive way absolve or deal with our guilt, not through our rationalizations, not through our ruminations or our regret or our attempts to atone for our actions, but the servant has and will deal with our guilt. You've probably seen the videos of, you know, when a dog owner walks into their house or apartment to just a really chaotic scene of um, destruction, right? And they start, they start filming and they're like, who did this? And they scan the, and, and pan the, the camera over and you see this little guy in the corner who's avoiding eye contact, you know, like um, whether it was like burst out of boredom or separation anxiety or just, you know, his two brain-celled impulses decided to wreak havoc in the house, right? And, and uh, th- this animal that is where, where um, shame is, is not innate for them, right? They're, they're usually just laid out in their belly, just wanting their belly to be scratched. Uh, we, we see this brief glimpse of them experiencing and feeling shame, right? 
Uh, of course, my dog is not this type of dog. He's not one of the intelligent breeds that knows what's going on. He's just kind of like, you know, just wagging his tail and happy that I'm back, even though, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously committed and done something wrong, right? But, um, you know, when, when, when they, they, they bring the Tupperware container that has the perfect matching teeth marks to their snout, and, you know, the verdict comes down that, that they're guilty that they did that, right? Um, we, we get to kind of laugh, and, and, and that's sort of cute, right? Our, our guilt is not like that. Our guilt is not cute, right? Um, our, our, our guilt is ugly. Our, our, our guilt has devastating consequences. It's more than just a couch cushion that's shredded into pieces. Our, our, our guilt, our sin that we carry is death to our souls. It's a, a turning from the very essence of what it means to be human image bearers of God. So starting in verse 13, this mindset of, of what do we do about our guilt? The prophet Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely and shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So Isaiah prophesies that the servant will be beaten beyond human semblance. The dehumanizing of an image bearer is the preceding justification for violence against them. So when a group or an individual is deemed subhuman, we have license to take their humanity or their life from them because we don't ascribe any value or worth or esteem, as this passage states, to them. And the servant would subject himself to this level of dehumanizing injustice. This is not an entirely foreign concept to us. When we examine stories like that of uh, and a, a young boy by the name of Emmett Till, who um, in the state of Mississippi, uh, he was falsely accused of a crime, and um, a, a lynch mob took him and, and beat him uh, beyond recognition, right? And unjustly, and, and uh, with, with no due process, took justice into their own hands, and they beat him ruthlessly. His mom courageously made the choice to have his, his funeral be an open casket funeral. And Emmett's unrecognizable body lay there beaten and scarred, showing the affliction and the gruesome torture that he was subjected to. When this maimed image of this young boy made it to the front page news it, just, it shocked the conscience of our nation, right? That the, the people finally were forced to confront the evil that they were either actively guilty of perpetuating or passively complicit in allowing to exist. So it's through this event that, that finally the civil rights movement started to gain some traction because people saw the suffering of an innocent person. And so the, the, the suffering and the dehumanizing of the servant would be something 
of a reckoning, is what Isaiah tells us. That by gruesome bloodshed, the servant would sprinkle many nations. And this is the great paradox of God. That the humiliation and the crushing of the servant would be the very thing that cleanses nations. The servant's blood was not like the blood of the priest on the day of atonement that had limited and temporary cleansing power. The servant's blood had permanent, eternal power for cleansing nations through the ages. Now, I don't know if many of you have sent off a sample to 23andMe, right? And, and you know uh, of, of all the nationalities and, and ethnicity, ethnicities um, that, that you are a product of. Um, but, but I would submit to you that uh, across this room, we have vast representation of, of, uh, of ethnicities and uh, people groups that, that we have descended and come from, right? And, and the fact that 2,000 years from the life and the ministry of Jesus, we are gathered together tonight reckoning with the sacrifice and the life of Jesus would be a fulfillment of this prophecy, that what was said and uttered long before the life of Jesus would be proclaimed after his work was done. That our hearing of the message of the cross is a fulfillment of this prophecy. And so just like our guilt that we talked about, the message and the suffering of the servant is something that we have to wrestle with just like generations before us. That we are a part of the sprinkling of many nations that the work of the servant has accomplished. So everyone from the least among us to kings, as Isaiah says, shall shut their mouths because of him. And do kings ever do that, by the way? I I, I mean, kings are not of the societal rung where, uh, you know, they have to shut their mouths a whole lot, right? Kings are the type of, of people where, uh, they can uh, incessantly listen to themselves talk, right? And because they have the authority to do so, right? So I, th- I think it's significant that Isaiah says that kings shall shut their mouths. And those who are in authority over nations are, are, are usually asked to give an official statement or a word on something that is breeding controversy, right? And so the suffering of the servant is something of substance that is, that is brought about controversy that is forcing a reckoning as we've talked about. And Isaiah is saying the only question that matters to kings, rulers, and yes, even us with our minute but tyrannical social media presence, we have to, we have to make something of the, ser- the suffering servant, right? We, we have to give an account for what we think about this event. It is that substantive. It is that meaningful. So I'm going to indulge some of you guys in the room who might be drifting off and thinking about the Roman Empire right now. Um, during during this, the, the crucifixion of Jesus happened during the reign of uh, Tiberius Caesar. Right? And uh, I, can, I can just imagine the, the press conference that happened at that time. You know, the, the, the earnest journalist is saying, Tiberius Caesar. Can you comment on the Judean religious criminal who was crucified a few weeks ago? Some are saying his death had something to do with the sky going dark in the middle of the day and the earthquake that's been reported across the empire. There's even been reports that his tomb was looted by angelic beings and that his followers are now claiming that he's appearing to them alive again. Right? 
Caesar Tiberius, he's, he's pensive, but he diplomatically answers from his prepared statement. Yeah, so the latest I have from Pilate, who's been in contact with the chief priests and Herod, is that they've been treating this as an internal matter for the Jewish people. They're handling it. I can speak to the natural events that occurred coincidentally or the reports of him coming back to life. I've been briefed that the situation is completely under control. Next question, right? It's not how it went down. Actually, Christian historians tell us that uh, Caesar Tiberius uh, motions to the Roman Senate, uh, the Roman Senate to uh, proclaim and declare that, that Jesus is deified, right? That, that, that he would, is acknowledging the deity of Jesus based off the reports of the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus. But then the Roman Senate goes into an uproar, right? And so it, it, it breeds controversy even in the most powerful halls of the world at that time, right? That everyone from the greatest to the least, has to give account for what they think about this Jesus of Nazareth and his death and torture on the cross. So the servant's death doesn't just leave kings or senators or anyone for that matter in neutral. That the work of the humiliated servant who had a crown of thorns stabbed into his scalp would make him the king that all would have to answer to. The suffering servant was the victim of a public spectacle. And this is what it meant when Isaiah said that he would be exalted, right? That's not necessarily something that is related to him being victorious, right? But it is related to him being publicly executed. And so while people didn't have smartphones at the time to, to pull them out and film it, it's obvious from the traumatized and the dejected men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 that the consciences of all who were in Jerusalem at that time, who had witnessed or heard the events of Jesus' execution, were pricked and troubled. Somehow, if you're familiar with this passage, the resurrected Jesus goes into incognito mode and he starts walking alongside these two men as he overhears their conversation they're talking about how this prophet who was mighty in word and deed, unlike anyone they'd ever heard or seen, Jesus would be the one to restore Israel, but that the rulers had put him to death. Jesus doubtless points them to this song in Isaiah, and he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So then Jesus proceeds to walk with them on the road to Emmaus. And he, it says that he explained to them all the things that the prophets had spoken to prove that he was the Christ. And the, the story goes on to say that their hearts burned within them as Jesus taught them all these things about himself. And they finally recognized him later in this aha moment when they invited him into their house and Jesus broke bread. It clicked for him. They realized this, this was him. How do we not realize we were talking to him, right? This picture of the bread breaking is something that we as Christians still observe as symbolizing the, the breaking of Jesus's body and the sacrifice that he made for us. We do this in remembrance of him. And so, 
maybe we know this feeling like the two guys on the road to Emmaus, right? This, this feeling when someone reveals the truth to us about something that has been mentally perplexing us or emotionally flooding us. That we might call it a light bulb moment or an epiphany, a realization, or in the case of our emotions, a breakthrough that brings about closure or resolution. But nobody gives us that quite like Jesus. See, this has been the subject of debate throughout Christian and church history. Uh, just last week, I was uh, in an area of the world where uh, this debate was raging on 500 years ago. Uh, we were in Germany and, and Austria, and I, you know, I couldn't quite convince my family uh, to, to go on the tour of Heidelberg and Augsburg and go to all the Reformation sites. Uh, they kind of wanted to go to the Christmas markets and to the ski slopes instead. Um, but uh, if, if I could have nerded out and gone to these places, I would have loved to have done that. But there's uh, this particular debate that happens in Heidelberg, uh, what we know today as the Heidelberg Disputation. But this is where Martin Luther is working out. Obviously, you guys know about the 95 Theses, right? Uh, but but Mar Martin Luther is working out his, his Reformation work, and he, he's positing that the, the, the church has presented this view of a, a theology of glory, right? That, um, in other words, that uh, the, the cross was important, but that through our understanding of God through uh, common grace or our observations in nature or um, just our, the, the good that is within us that we can reason and work our way toward God. And Martin Luther says, no, 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 no. So we need to adopt a theology of the cross that the beginning of our understanding happens when we see the paradoxical work of God in Christ on the cross. That the fundamental problem that we have is our sin and that there is a sin bearer who took our cross, who took our sin and our debt upon himself on the cross and that is the beginning of our understanding. We know nothing until we reckon with the upside down world flipping truth that God condescended into our form and emptied himself out on a criminal's cross though he was without sin. That is the beginning of knowledge for us. New Testament tells us that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That, that, that we have dealt with and we have looked at the suffering of God and we said, Jesus did that for me. And it's radically transformed. It has it completely altered our minds and completely informed why we are in this world to begin with. When we've confronted what happened on the cross. So Jesus' atoning death proceeding from a mob trial on a Roman criminal's cross was never a hapless circumstance or coincidence, but it was Jesus' mission on earth. It was plan A, prophecy fulfilling, perfectly timed, calculated revelation to the world of God's mystifying gospel that his sinless perfect son would be excruciatingly executed to atone for his wrath and purchase our salvation. This was the plan all along. The servant's death 
is the starting place of our new life. Yes, our souls, desires, consciences, and deeds are renewed by the work of the cross. This is why Jesus commands us to pick up our cross and follow after him. This is the starting point of our new life. Verse 1 of chapter 53 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. A root out of dry ground sounds like something growing out of my garden, um, but it is the most improbable, unimpressive, unpromising circumstance on the surface. Jesus of Nazareth, from the armpit of the world, the son of a construction worker, a teenage mom, that Jesus, we, we know who he is. He's not going to become anything of, of meaning or merit. What? This is what the folks in Jesus' hometown said after he sat down. He, he, he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. At first they marveled, and then they sought to throw him off a cliff. There's this really interesting part in Luke chapter 4 where it says, and he vanished from their midst. How does, how does Jesus do that? Right? There's an angry mob that's wanting to push him off a cliff and vanish from their midst. And, and I will tell you this, that this is something that that passage proves, Right? that there were always people who were seeking to kill Jesus when he made claims of being the son of God, right? But it was only in Jesus's timing and according to his terms that he submitted himself to the authorities to be crucified, right? And so there, there's, there's no way, this is, this is proof that it was not the will or the power of man to kill Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him as we will read later. That Jesus tells his disciples that he could call down legions of angels to deliver him, but that the suffering of the Messiah was necessary for the salvation of the world in the specific way that it happened as Isaiah prophesies in this passage. And I don't, I don't think we can adequately appreciate the angst of those kind of stakes, right? The, the, the stakes that made Jesus' capillaries burst with pressure to the point of sweating out blood in Gethsemane. Jesus knew what it meant to take on the wrath of God on the cross. That not only was it the physical pain of the most excruciating and, and, and prolific way to torture someone, as, as the Romans had devised with the crucifixion, but that more than that, that Jesus would be taking on the wrath of God towards sin, our guilt that put and held him there. And so Jesus understands these stakes. And as Isaiah alludes to in these verses, he would be utterly abandoned while he did it. As we talked about Mishpat a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the just reward, right, as Cole preached on, 
that his just reward would be disregarded on our behalf. That he didn't deserve any of the punishment that was coming to him, but he offered himself as a righteous ransom for us. So because the servant was abandoned, God will never abandon or forsake you. Because Jesus went through the excruciating agony of the cross, we are spared from the just punishment that we deserve. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, Jesus does all of this because you and I have a glaring need. Our need is healing. So when, when I try to uh, just power through having a, a sickness and come into the office, uh, I can always rely upon uh, one of my coworkers named Liz. You guys might have seen her at Next Steps before, uh, but she can always automatically see my face and say, Jacob, I can tell you're sick. Go home. And, and rest and feel better, right? She did that to me a couple of weeks ago when I was slated to, to preach. And uh, Cole heroically, and with two hours notice, uh, prepared and stood up here and preached on a passage from Isaiah, which was just incredibly impressive and remarkable. Um, but uh, f- for us, even if we want to try and deny our limitations, we try to mask our guilt and our shame and our, and, and, um, our sin, it tells on us, right? It is a dead giveaway. Furthermore, God knows our hearts, right? And we are in need of healing from this chronic disease that is sin. That apart from Christ, we stand guilty and condemned in our sin and guilt, and it's not absolvable by our own effort as the theology of glory would have imagined. In his infinite, paradoxical, and scandalous wisdom, God endeavored to heal us by the servant's wounds. We are healed 
by what Jesus did for us. We are healed by the servant's wounds. This was the just reward for Israel, the light to the nations, the wisdom from on high that culminates in the suffering of the servant that we might be justified through it. That we might receive healing from the servant's womb. And not just healing, but he, he calls us into an entirely new existence and being a new creation that we recover our humanity through the servant's dehumanizing humiliation. Think back with me to the men on the road to Emmaus. Like they had to grapple with before Jesus intersects with their journey. What do, what do we, like those two men, make of the events that happened at Golgotha? The public execution of the innocent Son of God who in his love for you and me laid down his life as a sacrifice. Let me ask you, have, have you gotten casual about it? Right? Is, is it something that you've just kind of taken for granted as something that we talk about at church? Or do we know that that was the cost of our salvation? Has the cross become something as a filler in our prayers when we run out of things to say, oh, God, thank you for the cross and, and what you did and sending your son to die for us. Amen. Right? Or is the cross the focal point of our conscience about the thing that we know most about God and choose to worship him in response? We are justified and outfitted for eternal life through the servant's atoning death. See, in, in the verses leading up to our passage tonight, Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10, says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has barred his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I'm, I'm reading this book right now by Dallas Willard. It's called The Divine Conspiracy. And it's absolutely rocking my world. I would 10 out of 10 recommend that you read it. But in it, he talks about how God delights in his creation and how God can be everywhere, all at once, for all of time with it. If we try to think too hard about that, it'll hurt your brain like it has mine, right? But the fact that God is always eternally, presently enjoying the universe, that, that we just, we have like little snippets of deep space from the James Webb telescope, right? But, but that God can be present in all those places and enjoying his good creation and actively creating and recreating it, right? Just gives us the scale and the magnitude of who God is, right? Last week when, when we went to this, this place in, in Austria where the, the biggest three peaks in Austria are and we stood out and looked and could see the Italian Dolomites in one direction, I could see Switzerland in the other direction, it felt like I was on top of the world. 
right? There's, there's jagged, majestic mountain peaks everywhere, right? And I got to entertain this thought that, that, that God was present and enjoying his creation there like he was in alpine lakes and crystal beaches, right? And all these beautiful scenic places of creation, right? And in my finite perspective, I would say, if I created that, I just want to hang out there, right? But that's not what our God does. Our God bears our grief and our sorrows. He steps down into the depths of the muckiest of mucks, our sin, our guilt, right? He, he, he condescends into our likeness. You know, I, I think for us, when, when, when we think about suffering and we think about uh, things that are uncomfortable for us to confront, we evade those thoughts, right? That's just awkward to think about. Like, man, I'm, I'm really sorry that that's happening to someone else somewhere in the other part of the world that I'm totally detached from, right? But I, I don't know what I can do about that, right? That is not the posture of your God. He stepped down into the depths of our pain and our guilt and our sin that we committed against him. He paid the debt for us so that we can join him in enjoying his good creation, so that we can step up to the mountain peak and recover our new life in him. He came down so that we didn't have to stay there but that we might experience a type of good life of enjoyment with him and the good works that he intended for us to walk in. And so as we enter into this time of 120 seconds, I wanna invite you to be in awe of your savior, that you can bring your guilt to the foot of the cross where he has paid your debt and he offers you a new life to walk in. Join me in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the words of Isaiah, God, that you spoke through him. God, that we have a Savior who has endured the affliction of those who had turned their back on him and abandoned him, subject him to torture and scorn, all that we might know you, God, all that we might experience the new life that he gives to us in his resurrection. So God, I pray as we enter into this time of reflection, God, that you would give us an absolute awe of who you are. God, that we, in the midst of things that are not insignificant that we are dealing with in our life, that are constantly consuming our thoughts and pulling at our hearts, God, that we can step outside of that and say that Jesus has paid it all. All to him we owe. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.